Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Police responded to a 911 call. Dramatic video of gun insanity in the Bronx. Police releasing a new video of a person that they are still trying to track down. Defund the police is not the answer. Many people surveyed said they just don't feel safe in the city. It's a shooting outside of a store. This is Bo Deedles. True crime. Police this morning are searching for the person who turned this Harlem platform to a crime scene. A Red Apple Media Podcast Network production. Now, here's Bo Deedle. Welcome, everybody, to Bo Deedle's True Crime Story. Well, you talk about crime, there's a couple of names that come up. Not committing the crimes, of course, but the crime fighters that I've been fortunate to know in my police career and in my life. And today, I'm really excited and really honored. We have probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest, police commissioner in the New York City Police Department on with me, and it's Commissioner Raymond Kelly also. He's also a colonel in the United States Marine Corps, sir. Did you get become a general yet, sir? Oh no! <laughs> All right, you're a current colonel. No, 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 no. And I want to thank yeah. I want to thank you for your service. Uh, uh, may I call you Ray, sir? Absolutely, of course. All right, and uh, Ray, I want to thank you for your service to the United States Marine Corps and for the service that you've done to our city. And a little bit of bit of background, how we fit in. Now, you know. I'm retired from the police department, the same as you. We really didn't have that much interaction when I was a New York City cop and detective and all that. I think our interaction became more so after I retired. I had to retire when I broke my leg in half, skydiving with the Arab guys. And uh, when I had to retire, and then we became really friends after that. And we became friends with another one of our friends, our dear departed good friend, James Fox, the former assistant director of the New York office of the FBI. And we dined out together many times, uh, you, Veronica, and I, we became personal friends. And I, I was very honored when you invited me, when you got sworn in for the uh, commissioner of the United States Commissioner of Commerce and also- Customs, I'm sorry, United States Customs. And then also when you got sworn in as the uh, Undersecretary of... Treasury. Treasury. And uh, I was in Washington for both of those glorious occasions. And uh, Jim Fox was a really good friend of mine. And you are still a very good friend of mine. I love you. I love your son, your two sons, and uh, your lovely wife, Veronica, and send my love. So you know what I wanted you on my podcast today? Because what's going on in this city today? First of all, I'd like to give a little time for you to explain your involvement with the New York City Police Department from the beginning, short, and then we'll talk about the current situation that we're facing every day. I still live in New York City on the Upper East Side. I uh, go to work every day. So New York is still my my town and I'm there. So why don't we start, Ray, from uh, your beginning there, wherever you'd like to start it, okay? Okay. Well, it's great to be with you. And you're right. We're, our friendship goes back uh, a long time. Uh, I joined the police department as a police cadet, which is something that doesn't even exist any, anymore. 
but there was an attempt to get uh, matriculating college students into the police department. I was a student at Manhattan College. I had to work to pay my tuition. So I joined the police cadet program, but I also wanted to go with the, the Marine Corps when I graduated from college. I had three older brothers in the Marine Corps. I became an officer when I graduated from college. I also became an NYPD a police officer. So the unusual set of circumstances. I went on active duty. I went to Vietnam. I came back. I had to go to the uh, police academy. I went to the police academy and uh, I started working in uh, different precinct commands. I got promoted to sergeant and uh, lieutenant and captain. And then um, I also was going to law school at, at night. So I became a lawyer. And uh, at one time, I wanted to sort of practice law full time. But no, I sort of came in love with, uh, with police work. And uh, it was just a magnet to me. And I stayed at the department for you know over 40 years. I was fortunate enough to be police commissioner twice, one under David Dakins and one under uh, Michael Bloomberg for a total of uh, 14 years. And as you said, I, I did go to the federal government in between my uh, two times as police commissioner. I was Treasury Undersecretary for Enforcement, and then I was U.S. Customs Commissioner, which has since merged with immigration to become uh, U.S. Customs and Border Border Protection. You can see they have their hands full these days. So that's pretty much it. Uh, well, I think, know, the I, I, did, I think a big important factor was, uh, Ray, is after 9-11 and— um, I was down there and you were down there and all that. After 9-11, you brought into the New York City some of the best talent, anti-terrorism, best talent that was out there. And one of my friends uh, that I'm still friends with, Frankie Labuti there, General, excuse me, General Labuti. And you brought some really great talent into the NYPD and the intelligence as far as the anti-terrorism and all that, which was so important after we were so brutally attacked on 9-11. Everybody, everybody just didn't know what to do next. And when you became the leader of the NYPD, IPD after 9-11, this transferred uh, the New York City Police Department into an anti-terrorism unit. And uh, some of the initiatives, I want to talk about what, what you did when you took charge there after the uh, terrorist attack. Uh, yeah, uh, I was the police commissioner during the first World Trade Center attack. Uh, that was in, uh, in 1993. Mm -hmm. I then went to the federal government and came back as Mike Bloomberg's Police Commissioner three months after 9-11. I felt that uh, we were very vulnerable. I felt that we were let down by the federal government. We had been attacked in 93 and should have been a wake-up call, but it wasn't. So we wanted to bring in expertise that we didn't have in the department. Uh, I reached out for a lot of active and retired people in the federal government, some that I knew as a result of my time in the, in the federal government, and we wanted the the capacity, the capabilities of people from the CIA, the DIA, the DEA, the FBI. We brought those people into the police department. We created an, an analysis unit that David Cohn, who I also brought in from 35 years in the CIA, he said was the best analytical unit he's ever uh, worked with. We stationed people overseas. And, and attend cities to act as a tripwire or a listening post for New York. Their expenses were paid for by the, the police foundation. And uh, I must say, in the 12 years of the Bloomberg administration, we had no terrorist attacks uh, that succeeded in, in New York City. It was by, uh, you know, great work on the part of the FBI, the NYPD, and sheer luck. 
Well, but you know, you no, know, we're really proud of that. And and very important for our listeners to, to listen to this. There were attacks that were planned, and and you uh, uh, avoided us being attacked because of the intelligence system that you put into place. Now, Ray, again, this is not, we're not telling secrets right now, but I mean, were you aware about the non-communication between the FBI and the CIA leading up to 9/11 at that point? Because you know, it's all come out now with the documentation as far as the CIA not telling the FBI what they had with these uh, hijackers and all. Were you a you were a preview of that after the fact, obviously. Yes, that's true. Uh, you're absolutely right. They they did not communicate. I saw some of those problems when I was in the uh, the federal government. Uh, that sort of siloed a lot of these these organizations. They don't want to share information, and the FBI didn't share information with us after the first World Trade Center attack. I'm not certain they had very much, but. Uh, <laughs> They weren't, weren't informing us. So that's one of the reasons why we beefed up the Joint Terrorism Task Force. We put about 150 New York City police officers in the JTTF. So at the very least, we have a better sense of what was going on on the, on the federal level. But uh, you're right, communications problem, and, and there's still communications problem uh, among uh, law enforcement agencies, unfortunately. You brought a professionalism, and look, it, I've been around, I'm a little younger than you, not that much younger than you, but you brought a professionalism into the New York City Police Department, where, to be very honest with you, even after 9-11, I felt so much safe when you were running the operation, because I knew the professionalism that it, you you put into play there. And as a New Yorker, I felt so comfortable that you 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 had this. And uh, with the difference of today, it's just throw figureheads here, throw no real qualification. And I'll say it, no real qualifications for a lot of these people that are in place in the NYPD. And the reality is that you brought that professionalism in there. Now, one of the most important things too, and we're going to go back to policing again, what you implemented, because what you brought with Stop and Frisk was a an equality of life where we respond on that. And we see today where you have motorcycles with light, no license plates driving on sidewalks. No one's stopping anybody's subway. Then you had the mental, you have the people with the uh, mental ailments there running around. It's just becoming, and I can use the word, it's become a real shit show. And no one's dealing with the smaller things as far as with the uh, quality of life things, which we see every day. And the, the disgrace on the New York City police officers are out there where the bad guys are, the, are looked upon as the victim if cops lock them up. And the victims are looked upon as being the bad guys. And I mean, I'm very, very, very positive with this Marine that uh, got the guy into the headlock there. And, uh, you know, I support that 100%. He took action. He's a hero. And that's it. And as far as when with the stop and frisk, I remember when I was on the force, that was a really great tool to get guns off the street. All right. You didn't see the gun, but you got the damn gun off the street when you, well, we used to call it toss it. But then all of a sudden the libs all of a sudden said, that ain't right. You tossed him. You didn't have probable cause to, to stop and frisk. Yeah, but I had probable cause to take that gun that could have killed your son off the street. It's a different era. And I do adapt to the era that we became. You got to remember from the 1970s, right? That's when I went on 1970. We uh, started the original citywide anti-crime with the federal money. We were taking off 30% of the gun off the city streets around New York. It was a great, but uh, then all of a sudden what happened with Diallo and, you know, times change and people's change, but your initiative with the stop and frisk, probably you can't count the amount of lives that were saved by taking these illegal guns off the street. And also the quality of life, turnstile jumpers, you grab them, all of a sudden there's 16 warrants, you grab them, they got a gun on them. I mean, you got to start from the beginning and that was your initiative that brought the crime down, Ray. And let's talk a little bit about that. People don't like to talk about it because it's 
is not a positive thing. And all the progressives hate the police, defund the police. Well, you're going to defund the police. You know what's going to happen? Crime is just going to keep soaring like it is. And I love the way they work these numbers with these statistics. Half the people ain't even reporting the crime. I hear about people getting punched in the head. Rob, did you report it? No. What difference does it make? And now with the new laws that they have with this moron state Senate and the state assembly, where you got to give the names of the witnesses within two weeks, you got to give the complainant's name and address within two weeks. Who the hell wants to be a complainant? Or who the hell wants to be a witness if you're a victim of a crime? You want me to answer that? Yes, sir. <laughs> There's a lot there. You put out a lot of stuff there. Uh, look, stop questioning first. is an absolutely legitimate tool. should be in every police officer's toolbox. comes from the common law. It's codified. It's in the New York State criminal procedure law. Validated by a Supreme Court decision, Terry versus Ohio. I can talk for a long time about the trial that took place, but it was it was a, a sham. And really, what we did, and Bo, you remember in the seventies, I was on the street then too. Look, we didn't often make out the the stop and frisk two fifty forms. There was no there was no issue. Right. What we had to do, and what we required, is cops to record it. And in, in, your, in your memo book, I remember in the memo book. Well, there's also there's also a form that uh, should be made out. So we started requiring that people looked at the numbers and were supposedly horrified by it. The largest number was like over six hundred thousand. <clears throat> people don't think that's a big number. It amounted to less than one stop a patrol officer and less than one pat down every one stop per week. And one pat down every two weeks for a patrol officer. So, uh, you know, it was, it, it should be put in place. I don't know why they're not doing it. Obviously, they're not doing it for political reasons, but certainly not for effective patrol uh, practices. And, and you also know, Bo, that uh, the anti crime units are critical to addressing street crime. These are police officers in. Civilian clothes, they perhaps in taxi cabs or other things to disguise their appearance. But the perpetrators of street crime these days have no reason to look over their shoulder because they know anti-crime cops are not are not out there, and they are a very valuable tool that should be put back in place. And there's no reason why it's not in place, other than a, a political reason. So, yeah, I agree with you. Quality of life is out of control in New York City. <laughs> we all know people who have left the city, and I think the deterioration of quality of life is probably the biggest reason. Yeah. Taxes, yes, the crime, yes. But you can't walk across the street without looking for scooters going both ways. No license plates. Without, without lights on. And yeah, oh, that was de Blasio, de Blasio in the city council. They didn't require any regulation of that because it was supposedly going to help Poor people. So and that's where we are. You, you, you can feel deterioration in the city, and you can feel it continuing to degrade. I live in a city as, as well, and uh, it feels different. It feels uh, it's dangerous, and there's no effort that I can see. Crime is up over, well, all of them are up dramatically over the two-year figure. Eric Adams' first year, crime is up 25%. Now it's up a smaller amount, but it's on that base of uh, 25%. Yeah, but you got to remember, Ray, you got to remember the statistics, and you know better than anybody. You got to remember if the cops are not out there the way we used to be and be proactive taking those guns off the street, be proactive of 
going after these gang members, being proactive. You're not, your statistics are not even really true statistics because the cops are not doing their job because one, they don't get the support. Number two is a headlock. Ray, I used a headlock a hundred times. You know, I affected the arrest, maybe over 1500 felons. I used a headlock 200 times. How the hell was I going to get a guy down six foot three, four? And now the new regulations, you can't, and they call it a chokehold. A headlock is not a chokehold. And then you can't climb on top of him. How in the hell do you put handcuffs under a guy who's resisting arrest, who's six foot two, just out of jail? How do you do that? I don't understand. And now when they talk about it, they're ready. They got video cameras. They're ready to suspend a cop. Then the, the new one is, there's the new one, Ray. If these, yeah. if they, and I'm going to use, I'm going to use some bad words because I can. And then if the scumbag who has got a long record says that you use the N-word to him right away. It reverses. They drop the charges. Now you're investigating for saying a racist comment. And the guy who's committing the robbery that's resisting arrest is let off. This is what's happened. Then they want to go after him, Ray. They want to go with their pension. They want to fire him. And then they're coming up with this new thing where they want to be able to sue him civilly. Why would you, as a as a New York City cop, want to do anything? And I understand. It hurts my heart so much because so many cops want to do their jobs out there. And they're handcuffed, not just by these courts. And then you had that snaggletooth. What was her name? That garbage can liberal progressive law judge that made the determination with stop and I'd like to use yeah, her Sarah name. Sarah Schindler. Sarah well, Schindler. Yeah, Schindler's List. What was her name? Yeah. Shira is her first name. Shinlin is her last name. Yeah, well, Shira Stan Yeah, If you listen to my podcast, I hope you are. I don't want to hope any negativity, but I hope someone you love, one of your family members becomes a victim because the cops didn't take that gun or that weapon off that perpetrator out there. And then maybe you'll look at this a little different. And now you got this moron controller, uh, Linder, whatever his name is. He wants to defund the police. Right away, they jump ugly with this hero Marine who took out action. If it would have been okay, and then they run. You know what I love, Ray? I love when they run the pictures of him being a Michael Jackson singer. Yeah, that was 10 years ago before he went in flip-out mode. And yeah, then it was they, 2011, yeah. Right, and then they find, I love when they, when a guy gets shot by a cop, they bring out his first Holy Communion picture, and the guy's 30 <laughs> years old, and they bring out a Holy Communion picture. This is the game that they play. Then we get my friend, the, the race baiter, my friend Al Sharpton, Shakedown Sharpton there. He comes on. Everybody, where is the support for this young Marine. Four years in the United States Marine Corps. He took action. There was a young black guy that was helping him there, too. They took action. There was no way in the world that this Marine ever, ever fathomed that this guy would go out. Normally, if you get him into a hole like that, you knock him out, he falls down lifeless, and he comes back. A terrible tragedy occurred. We don't want to see anybody die, but to take this and reverse this around, then nobody's going to get involved. They're going to say, look, I don't want to get involved in the state that we're in now. And here, I, I, I just, I, I, I just get crazy over it, Ray. I'm sorry. I get emotional because I've been following. I was a Fox News contributor uh, since 2005. Every show I went on, every show that I went on, Hannity, O'Reilly, Good Morning, Good Afternoon, Outnumbered and In Numbered, uh, Live at Five, everything all I talked about, and I kept track of the murders in Chicago. Every year it was averaging 600 murders a year for the last 20 years. That's about 8,000 people killed. And now our great president, I know you know him, you love him and all that. Our great president, Obama, he came from Chicago. For some reason, people don't want to know the real statistics. 21,000 people were killed in the United States by gun 
violence in 2022, but no one knows the reality. The reality is 80% are minorities, and of that reality, 80% were minorities, and and 90% of the perpetrators were minority blacks. The numbers are the numbers. So when you start to talk about stop and frisk being uh, uh, used against minorities more than the others, well, the reality is where are the crimes? Who's committing the crimes? And let's stop being politically correct and stop painting this any way but it is. But why don't our leaders come out, our black leaders, why don't they realize the victims? Who are the victims, Ray? When you were the police commissioner, who were most of the victims? Obviously, people in the poor neighborhoods, black, Latino uh, people, they are 90 percent of the victims, as you said. Uh, and, but, you know, you got to look at the press. That's the conduit where people would receive these numbers would get. Well, then they're not printing it. They're not writing it. Uh, you've been terrific. Uh, you're always supportive of the police. I see you on on television. But you are an anomaly. You're an outlier because people, generally speaking, I don't don't like the place as far as the commentators on on television is concerned. MSNBC and uh, you know ABC, NBC. So it's an uphill battle because the public is not getting the information that they they should get. There's no objective news anymore. It's either one side or the other. And uh, as far as the uh, you know the progressives are concerned, they certainly outnumber the right-wing uh, uh, channels or, or conduits of information. Yeah, and so it's, it's I mean, very difficult. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Even even with Mayor Eric Adams, I was supportive of him when he ran for state senate. I raised a lot of money when he was borough president, and I I grabbed him. And he said, "Oh, Bo, you you know you want to come on board?" I said, "I don't want to come on board anywhere. I run a business. I want to do my business. I have an investigative security business and all that." I said, "You know what I'd like you to do? Appoint me as chairman of a crime commission in New York City. Let me be the outspoken guy." And here's my big question, Ray. And I use this all the time. With the statistics of the repetitive people carrying guns, they have the federal laws in place, which you know very well. And why aren't the DAs being sworn in as USAs and prosecuting gun people who are convicted felons carrying gun? You know, under the federal law, it goes to 10 to 15 years. I guarantee you, and I said to Eric Adams, bring me out as your mouthpiece. I'll have news conferences in front of the Eastern District and the Southern District. Why aren't we prosecuting these little scumbag gang members who are repetitive carrying guns? Why aren't we prosecuting? I will guarantee you, Ray, if we start prosecuting people that are carrying guns who are convicted felons, it will not be eliminated completely, but you'll see an 80% dip in shootings and murders because we have the law on the books because these little punks up there in the state Senate and the Assembly don't want to prosecute. Then we get these DAs like Bragg and all these other morons there. They don't want to prosecute. Why don't you want to prosecute? Because this is your progressive values of what you want to do. Then when you get a Marine that steps up, everybody jumps ugly. But what do you think about prosecuting them, like I say, under the federal law that's out there, Ray? It has to be 
the cases have to be accepted by the federal attorney, the U.S. attorney. And through the years, they have resisted. Uh, actually, Brooklyn, I'm giving a little bit of ancient history. Brooklyn was much more receptive than Manhattan at one time to prosecute these cases. But they have to want them. They have to accept them. They just can't show up in the court. It, it, you're right. There is a federal law. And it, they used to have a program called Trigger Lock. Yes. Where the federal government would, you know, would prosecute these cases. And you're right. It's a tremendous deterrent. Well, I've to talked to my knowledge, very little of that is going on now. Well, I've talked to friends of mine who head up the FBI group, the ATF head. I talked to them first, so I know a little bit what I'm talking about. They tell me they get resistance from the U.S. Attorney's Office, not the prosecutor. We have 1,200 DAs in New York, the five boroughs. You know what they're doing? Nothing. How about taking 50, 75 of them? And you know how easy it is. They swear them as AUSAs federally, and we get 100 New York City detectives, swear them in as U.S. Marshals, whatever you want to do, giving them the federal exercise. Start prosecuting. And the reality is, here's where it comes down to, Ray. And here we go with political garbage. There's one word that comes out why they're not prosecuting. Garland. You've got a U.S. attorney there that's a progressive piece of garbage, and it's coming out exactly what he did, exactly during the— I don't like Donald Trump, okay? I think he's a narcissist piece of garbage. But what they did to him by utilizing the U.S. attorney's office and utilizing my FBI that I love and honor, and they used him in a political way, the way they used him is disgraceful, and this should come out. But the news media don't care, Ray. And I, I know your political aff affiliations are not— First of all, I'm an independent, and I said it right I'm out. I'm an independent. I'm an independent, too. Well, no, I mean, what's your feelings about the FBI and this guy, Garland, and the U.S. attorney, Comey, and what happened with our federal government being used for political advances? What's your feeling about that, Ray? Well, people should be shocked with the, the revelations that have just come out in the, in the Durham report. Yeah. It is incredible what they did. Now, it's written in kind of a matter-of-fact way. There's no real emotional words or feelings in the report, and that's part of a problem. Mm -hmm. People are saying, they, oh, there's no there there. Absolutely wrong. Oh. They are. It, it points to, well, it actually points to uh, the highest office in the land, the chief. Absolutely. And you talk about Trump. And you talk about. And you talk about a political uh, presidential invasion of an election. That's that's it right there. When you have the FISA warrant, every aspect of this, Ray, was to me, my stomach drops out that they actually. And the guy was offered a million dollars, this punk, to, to give a fake thing to the FISA warrant. I mean, I'm outraged about it. I'd like you to talk to me. A little bit more about, I think this topic is the most disgraceful part of our American democracy, utilizing the FBI and the Justice Department for political reasons. To me, that's the end of all. What's your feeling, Ray? I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I always looked up to the FBI. I always thought they were uh, objective. They were, they were an entity that believed in their motto, uh, you know, Fidelity, uh, bravery, integrity. No, I mean, I, I look, as everybody says, the vast majority of FBI agents are decent people. They want to do the job, but the leadership in the last few years has been horrific, and they were out to get a president of the United States. Mm -hmm. Incredible. 
That to me, to the elected president, that they and and by the way, he was impeached twice. Imagine, Ray, Midge, imagine if that was Trump and they had that evidence on Trump. Yeah. I mean, people, people listening, this is why we have to get rid of this swamp crap. I like the guy, that governor guy down in Florida. I this, I like this swami guy, young guy. We got to get rid of the garbage on both sides. We got to get this country straightened out. And the reality is if we elect another swamp person in there, the laughing hyena vice president or Mr. Biden which I think he should go to the dog track already. It's over. Uh, I know Senator Biden. He loved cops when I used to know him years ago. Now all of a sudden he hates cops. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) And all I can say is one thing. We're going to end it on this. Ray Kelly, I will tell you right now, if you were appointed the head of the FBI, we would have a great country today. And you'd still be there. And I'm going to tell you something. You would never, ever let that happen. You would tell the U.S. attorney, you know what? You better fire me because I ain't going along with this garbage. And that's the kind of guy you are. You're a real American hero. You're a Marine. And Ray, anything you ever need, you and your family, I love you. And I'm going to end it, but uh, God bless you and your family, Ray. And anything you ever need, I'm there for you, sir. Well, you're terrific. Thanks, Bo. Thanks for those kind words. That- Hey, keep up the fight. I am you're, you're I'm, an important voice. I'm still fighting. We should have dinner very soon. Okay, Ray, I love you. Okay, Paul. All right. Thanks a lot. Take okay. care. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.